guest today is We Are Paul. I was thinking about the first time I really heard We Are Paul, and it was in 2005 when we played a show together, and I had heard about him for many years, but I didn't know what it sounded like, and I just couldn't believe how tight it was when I saw it. It was like, this guy is as good at writing songs as like Towns Van Zant or something, but he's writing about these insane topics. And it's something where the more you dig into his catalog, the more you'll get out of it. And so amped to have him on the show. It was another call-in show. I don't know how you guys feel about these phone ones, but it had to go down that way because I ended up not being in Pittsburgh on the day I was planning to be. Uh, Before we begin... I want to say that the Baltimore Rap Round Robin is happening this Friday at the Crown with Easy Jackson, PT Burnham, 83 Cutlass, JPEG Mafia, Anna Note, Drew Scott, and Secret Weapon Dave. The artwork this week is by Mike Riley. Check him out at Mike Riley Comics. And once again, we're being hosted by Splice Today. Check them out at splicetoday.com. Let's, Let's go. go. Well, I grew up in uh, the uh, suburbs uh, outside of Pittsburgh, so it's not actually in the city of Pittsburgh at all. But I lived out in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, and it's just uh, you know typical suburban stuff: all the green lawns and niceish houses and all that kind of stuff. When I was real young, until I was ten, we lived in probably the the town I grew up in, Bethel Park. uh, You know, it's it's one of the nicer areas, uh, you know, which would buy nicer. I mean, the property taxes are a little higher, you know. So, uh, but, when, but until I was 10, I grew up on uh, First Street, which is probably the worst uh, part of Battle Park. Mm. Just, um, <laughs> that's where like the, you know, that was like the property that was worth the least and everything. But it was also the, like the beginning of Bethel Park. Like Bethel Park was a, was a mining Area uh, and Bethel Park's original name was called Mine Three. <laughs> every city was just Mine Number Whatever. So, <laughs> but uh, so we were Mine Three. But uh, anyway, it wasn't. It wasn't. That was like the worst part of, of the area. But uh, we ended up moving out of there not because of that, but because um, my family started getting bigger. My my parents had had their third kid, and they were like, "Well, this house isn't big enough anymore." So we moved to this slightly nicer area. What did your parents do out there? What did they do? Well, my mom and dad both worked at the same place um, for for most of their lives, this uh, spray paint facility. Oh, okay. Tri- Tri-State Finishing. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they worked there almost their entire time that they worked. I mean, my dad worked there almost up until he retired. Same with my mom. I got a job there when I was 18. And I oh, worked wow. there for I worked there for 18 years. Until it closed, <laughs> so it was it was a real family kind of thing. I mean, 
we didn't own the business, but we all worked there. And I ended up actually man- being the manager of the whole plant uh, at some point before that place closed. It very stressful. And, and oh, wow. I, I, did, I didn't want to do that kind of work ever again after I lost that job. I was like, this is too much. I can't handle running a, a business like this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, right. But that's, yeah, that's that's what they did. And, you know, it was tough for them, I guess, raising raising four kids because they, they didn't weren't, weren't raking in the big bucks or anything like that. But, uh, you know, we, we had to, I didn't get what I wanted most of the time, but that's why uh, it ended up being pretty cool because I, when I didn't get what I wanted, I ended up trying to make it myself. So I ended up making my own games, making my own movies and making my own videos and everything, trying to make everything that I couldn't have. And now I still have most of it, which is really cool because I look back at it all. When did the video camera stuff begin? Well, that was in 84. Yeah. Uh, 1984. And my dad was always really into, like, getting tech. He liked to get uh, the new whatever it was. I mean, he, he was one of the first people I knew that had an 8-track player, even though I was real little at the time. Looking back, I, I realized that, you know, yeah, that. And then he had a cassette player, you know, real early on and everything like that. So he'd always try to – he was always into getting the latest thing. And we had a VCR in 1982 – which, you know, nobody in my school had a VCR at that time. We were like the first yeah. family to have one. Um, so, you know, the next thing that there was to get was a video camera. And, uh, you know, I was just really excited about having that because I thought about all the, the cool things you could do with it. And I had seen people on TV. There was actually a couple shows I had seen. Like this was way before America's Funniest Home Videos and that kind of stuff. But uh, there was some specials and stuff on TV where people had sent in their home movies and they showed them. And I was like, ah, I want to do stuff like that too. So, um, you know, when I, my my dad got this camera, he didn't want me to touch it, you know, <laughs> keep my hands off of it. But yeah. I didn't care. I mean, I was gonna just pick that, the camera up every chance I got. I felt like this was my this was my role here in the world. This was my destiny. Was mm. This thing. So. And did you feel like you know you could get your stuff on TV too, like the people you saw? I mean, that's what. I was kind of filming it in that way. I mean, the thing is, yeah. you know, uh, since, like I said, my dad had all, like, the audio and everything, I was already – I already was using a tape recorder when I was – I'm going to say I was, like, seven when I started yeah. using a tape recorder. Maybe eight at the – maybe at the the the, uh, the oldest that I started was eight. I don't remember. But, but I was already, like, recording all this stuff. So doing my own, like, little audio dramas and all this kind of stuff, you know, like kids do um, – so it was just kind of a natural progression. So now I had the now I had this picture to go with the with the sound, you know. So it's an extra thing. So it was just like making little little movies, documenting things, you know, all the same stuff that I had done with my tape recorder. So now you could see it. But I definitely like was like it'd be great if I could be on TV just like these other people. So I was I was just imitating everything I saw, you know. I saw that and I tried to do do it do what I saw, do the same thing, you know even though there wasn't really a chance in hell that I was going to be on TV. <laughs> not not back then, anyway, let's just say. So, like, what were some of the big musical things for you at that time? Like, just things that, that really spoke to you? Well, you know, I didn't get into music until, like, right around that time when we got the video camera. All the other yeah. kids in school were already into music. Kids had have, like, REO Speedwagon folders and cheap trick T-shirts and stuff, and I had no idea what any of that was. I just, I, I had no idea. I wasn't, like, into anything. And uh, once we got the VCR, at some point, I start, I found out about music videos. Because that's, like, the heyday of music videos, like, starting around 82, yeah. 83, like, right after MTV had started, which we didn't have MTV, but music videos were 
pretty much everywhere. You'll watch them on normal network TV, too. So uh, that's how I got into music, actually, is from seeing music videos, which to me now makes sense because I was so into using the video camera and seeing all this stuff, and, you know, it all appealed to me, like all this visual stuff. So then that's that bridged me to music. I saw the visuals. I thought that was really cool. And then I saw that song's catchy, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, I was listening to the Beatles mostly because my mom and dad only listened, didn't listen to anything contemporary for the most part. You know, they didn't go out and buy whatever the newest record was. They listened to oldies, doo-wop stuff and the Beatles, but I, like, ruined all my dad's, like, rare Beatles records. And I would just, you know, play them over and over again on my record player when I was a little kid. But again, I got into that because there was a Beatles cartoon on uh, when I was, like, you know, five, six years old. And I watched it after school every day. And that's how I got into the Beatles, started listening to that. So that was pretty much it for then, other than maybe listening to commercial jingles, um, stuff on Sesame Street, like catchy songs. Like Joe Raposo was the main guy who wrote music for Sesame Street. I was really into that. I like catchy stuff, catchy catchy hooks, clever, oh, clever yeah. stuff, clever, clever lyrics. So I was into all that before when I was a kid, but I never really got into popular music until I saw the music videos. That's what did it for me. And what were the big things at that point from the from the video era? Bands, you mean? Or yeah. Um, let me think back. What what we were listening to then? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean the 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 big thing back then, of course, was Michael Jackson. Um, yeah. That was so over. You know, it was I was so overblown. It was everywhere. So, and I was always into more. I always was into like slightly more obscure weird stuff i don't know why but it always appealed to me like finding this stuff that nobody else really cared or knew about so um i mean i got into weird al first i guess uh, mm. that seems kind of obvious probably Thank you. Um, so but i yeah i was really into weird al and um i remember getting into like twisted sister it was, mm. like, just crazy cartoonish stuff in the music videos just ridiculous you know kind of almost funny, you know, songs. Oh, yeah. I, I want to rock, and we're not going to take it. Just, you know, this is kind of anthemic, and, and um, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm against all authority and all that kind of stuff. So this is kind of ridiculous, but kind of kind of great, you know. Yeah. So I was into all that kind of stuff at first, kind of kind of commercial heavy metal, and, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember... What else? I mean, it was just kind of any anything that was a popular video is what I got into first. I remember the police were real big then. Every breath you take, ZZ Top, that was really big at the time. Yeah. Eliminator, legs, and give me all your love and all that stuff. Oh yeah, because they had on Friday night videos, which is where I saw my videos. Because MTV, I didn't have MTV. Um, they used to do like on MTV, they'd have Friday nights. They'd do like a video fight. You'd call in and vote for which video you thought was the best. So Friday Night Videos copped the idea, and they started doing it. And one week it was Easy Top against Def Leppard. And I was like, that was like the big fight. It was like, it was crazy. Easy Top <laughs> ended up winning. Everybody was going crazy. Easy Top, Easy Top, they're the best band ever. And then, then the next night on Saturday Night Live, they had it was a presidential election year, whatever year that was. Now 80, 84, 83 or eighty four. I guess it must have been eighty four. I can't remember. Hmm. But um. They had this thing where they told, they said, everybody call in and tell us who you're going to vote for. So they had this live call in on Saturday Night Live. I don't think they've ever done anything like that since. But uh, anyway, they, they, they had ZZ Top as a candidate. They were like, let's just write in ZZ Top and see how many votes they get. And ZZ Top <laughs> ended up winning. They beat every other candidate. 
kind of crazy. That's awesome. But so, when did you start writing songs? Uh, let's see. I started writing songs. Uh, it was 1984. That's when it was. And I had heard Weird Al. He was he was uh you know writing. He was doing parodies of of all the popular songs. And one day I was sitting in history class, and I couldn't stand my history teacher. He just was terrible. He's an awful teacher. Just was like kind of mean. He was awful, boring. And I was like, ah, I'm just gonna write a song about this teacher, but I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, make it a parody. So I think it was. There was a couple, I think. The one was Beat It by Michael Jackson. So I changed it to Beat It, Mr. Labetta. That was his name. <laughs> it was awful. And then there was another one. It was um, What You Might Think by The Cars. I changed it to What You Might Think About Mr. Labetta. One of was like, put his name after the title. And then and then changed the lyrics to be about how bad of a teacher he was, you know. So, so I did like a whole – I did a couple EP, cassette EPs in 1984 uh, of just all parodies. Most of them were about my teachers. There were some that weren't, but – I did that, and then early 85, uh, I did like a full length. It was basically those first two EPs. I re-recorded them, made a full length tape. It was just me singing over top of the songs. We had two tape recorders. You didn't, you know, we didn't have any kind of multi-track recording. You put one tape recorder on, play the song. Second tape recorder, you press record, and then you just sing over it. Oh yeah. Capture it as a, as a new song, a new recording. So I did that. But it wasn't until I got a guitar, which was in the fall of 85. My parents found this guitar at a rummage sale. It was $8. They bought it, brought it home. Uh, and recently, I found out, I finally identified what it was. I had no idea what it was all these years. Somebody found out it was a, it's a Tiesco, uh, which is some kind of rare Japanese guitar. It's actually worth money, I guess. I oh, nice. would, would, would never have known, you know. So yeah. I got that, and uh, and that's when I started writing my own songs. And I had no idea how to play it at all. You know, so all like the early songs I wrote on it, like there's just like not even there's the guitar's not even tuned or anything. You know, I'm just like playing like I have no idea. Like three of the strings are tuned to B flat or something. This is really odd. But uh, you know, now people like listen to it and they're like, this is kind of amazing. It's kind of like no wave or something. You know, they think that I like did it on purpose, but really I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I had no, I was like banging on the open strings. <laughs> you know? so, but I didn't care. I mean, I just wanted to create stuff. And that's all it's always been for me, really. I mean, I just, it doesn't matter whether, uh, you know, it's the way it's supposed to be, as long as I can do it, you know. Was there an early release that was like, where you were like, wow, I'm really on to something? Well, let's see here. I mean, the first four or five cassettes I recorded, uh, I didn't like release. I just like, I just uh, let kids in school borrow them, and they'd borrow right, them. And right. Some some kids would borrow them and say, "This is awful, Paul. This is just terrible." And then, like, occasionally, like somebody would be like, "This is really great. This is awesome." You know, they like somebody would get it. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, you know, I finally put out a tape that I was sold, sold around my school. Uh, that was in '87. So I did that, and I think I think it was the second one that I made. It was right before I graduated. I put a tape out. I need a pencil sharpener was the name of it. And oh yeah. I felt like I was finally like getting some more. My dad got me like a mixer. I recorded that with like a, a, a Radio Shack realistic mixer where you could like plug in a tape deck and plug in a mic and record one tape. Could go to another tape deck and you could record another thing. It wasn't like multi-track, but you could you could mix in other things. It's like you know like a DJ would use it. It's like a mixer a DJ would use. 
Yeah. So I was able to actually like add tracks to stuff. It was very primitive, but still, it was like I could actually do some kind of multi-track recording. And I remember finishing that and being like, this is pretty pretty decent. I felt good about it. And then I started sending it to radio stations. And Manny Thiner played it on WRCT. That's how I met Manny. Uh, oh, wow. Doing that. Yeah, that was in 1988. So, yeah, I think I think that's when I was like, this is this is going to be all right. And then I went away to recording school, and that kind of... That kind of uh, got me off track briefly. I, suddenly, I was like, I just went to recording school, and I can make like a Sgt. Pepper's now or something, you know? And like, mm. just my next album was like overproduced really badly. Oh wow, which one? Uh, that's now I blow my ABCs. Oh, okay. Like twenty six songs, one for each letter of the alphabet. And I was just yeah. like, and now I don't really like that album when I listen to it because it's just so I like kept adding more and more tracks and more and more tracks and, and stuff. And and I just I don't know. I just I think I. I was trying to. I don't know what I was what I was aiming for, but it was after I recorded that I, I started going through like kind of a writer's block. I was having trouble writing songs. I'd been writing songs like constantly. And I was having some trouble, and that's when I heard Daniel Johnston for the first time. It's like uh-huh. early '89, and that like, and then everything changed. I was like, I was like, oh, everything can be really simple, and it's still like really meaningful and really cool. So I can just press play on this boombox, or, pre- or press record on this boombox, and just tape myself. I don't even have to have more than one track, and it's still going to be awesome. So that kind of like changed everything. Right. Put me back in the right frame of mind, and then everything. I felt like everything was really awesome after that. And like, where did you go to recording school? Well, I went to the recording workshop. It's places in Chillicothe, Ohio. It's still there. Okay. And uh, you know what they have now. If you compare what I used there in 1988 when I went to school to what they have now, it'd be like laughable, like prehistoric. Right, you know? right, right. Because I'm sure they, they probably don't even use reel-to-reel tape anymore. I can't imagine yeah. that they do. I mean, we had reel-to-reel tape. We were editing it. We learned how to cut it and everything and, you know, all this stuff that I'm sure that they, they don't use anything like any of this anymore. If I went in there now, I'd be like, I don't, I don't even know how to use any of this stuff. You know? Right. And I, you know, my parents were like, you need to go somewhere. You need to do something. I didn't really want to. I hated high school. I was like, this isn't for me. I, I don't really feel like going to college is what I want to do. I, I just doesn't, I don't think I can deal with this anymore. So I went to this recording school and I came back and I think my, my parents were like, okay, he's going to get a job working in a studio or something. I came back and I was just like, oh, now I know how to record music better. I'm going to like record some music and I'm going to get a contract with a record company or something because I'm going to make a demo. I didn't really even care about going and getting a job. <laughs> right, right. was not what I was planning at all. <laughs> well, it's interesting, like the I need a pencil sharpener stuff. Like you, you have your own like style of like recording and mixing, even if it's like primitive, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like I feel like you can tell you're you're like going for something, and you have you know you know how you want it to sound. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, a, a couple things I could say about that. One is, um, I remember in '91 when I was on tour, and I you know I had been doing all my a lot of my recording on just tape recorders and stuff, and we we had stopped somewhere, and there was a fanzine called Conflict. It was out back then, and it was one of the writers, or maybe the guy who even put it out was Gerard Cosley who is the guy who owns uh, Matador, I guess, Matador Records, uh-huh. which is a big company now. But he, at the time, right. he was, he was, I think he had just quit working at Homestead back then. Okay. And, and uh, 
there was an, a review of some band in there, and he said, this band sounds like it was recorded with Paul Petrovsky's tape recorder. So it's like people could, like, use me as a reference <laughs> for, a, for a sound, for, like, a production sound. I thought that was pretty funny. That's awesome. But I always tried – I always heard something in my head, and I wanted to um, – because I have, like, an aural thing. Some people say they can see things really vividly in their heads, you know, like paintings yeah. or, or shots of movies or whatever. I don't – I can't really see anything in my head for some reason. But I can hear everything very clearly. Like, I can hear a, a song, a classic rock song, like Barracuda by Heart. I can hear every note in it, everything in my head, the entire song. I could just listen to it. You know, like, if I was on a desert, deserted island and I hadn't have any music records or anything, I could just listen to every song I'd ever heard in my head. And I can hear them all. But uh, I, I hear my songs in my head, how I want them to be recorded, but I was never able to, like, actually reproduce what I heard in my head. Because, for one thing, I didn't have the equipment. The other thing is, I n always have been uh, composing beyond my ability to play the instruments. You know what? I'm not a real good musician. I mean, some some people tell me I'm a good guitarist or something. I'm okay, but most instruments, I, just, I can play them, but that's it. I'm, I'm not great. So I could never, like, make the song sound like I hear them in my head. And as the years have gone on, I've gotten a little bit better at playing. My recording software has gotten a little bit better. And so now I'm the closest I've ever been to, like, replicating the sound that I hear, you know? Right, right, right. It's always been like, you know, there was a point where I was like punk. I wanted everything to sound kind of punk, real lo-fi. Now it's like kind of poppy, 80s kind of power pop sounding stuff. I mean, that's what I grew up listening to. It's what I like. That's kind of my sound now. Well, when did the the punk influence enter? Well, that's I can tell you exactly when it entered. Okay. Because it was in 1986. It was like probably October 1986. I was listening to the Doctor Demento show. Doctor Demento is a is like a, a DJ he had like a nationwide show that was aired all over the country, syndicated. Right, right. And he he played comedy music, and his show isn't on anymore. You can listen to it online, I think, but. Uh, I, I got into that because I was into Weird Al and I found out about Dr. Demento. I went to see Weird Al live, 1985. Uh, Whoa. And, yeah, and uh, that was really early on. I mean, that was like when his album Dare to be Stupid came out, Like a Surgeon, all those songs. So I saw him, and he brought Dr. Demento out as his opening act. And Dr. Demento showed some videos and played some songs and sang some songs. And so I found out about Dr. Demento, started listening to Dr. Demento, and around October 86, he had Weird Al on as a guest. Weird Al was playing some of his favorite songs. And one of the songs he played was Beat on the Brat by the Ramones. Oh, and I had never heard of the Ramones. I think I had been listening to Devo, but they're not really punk, at least the stuff that they released. It was more New Wave or, or kind of experimental kind of weirdness. But it wasn't really punk, at least not then. Maybe earlier in the 70s, it sounded like punk. But... Uh, I had never really heard like real punk like the Ramones. I heard people mention bands like the Sex Pistols or whatever, but I had no idea how to hear them. You didn't hear that on commercial radio, you know. Yeah. So, so I finally heard the Ramones, and I was like, "Wow!" I was like, "This is incredible. This is just like the best song I've ever heard. It's so short. It's funny. It's catchy. Production is so cool. You know, I just love this. So, uh, I, that made me want to like find out more about all that kind of music. Finally, I found college radio and that was the big thing that opened everything up for me i was like there's all kinds of music out there there's more bands than you've ever heard of than you can ever even listen to in your life you know right so that opened up the world to me here it all is so. okay so so as you start to send stuff out and and 
you know, Manny likes it and he plays it on his show. Is that, is that like one of the first kind of like contacts you have, like, like outside of, you know, your, your kind of insular world? Yeah. I mean, I first started listening to the college radio. The first station I listened to was California University here, California, Pennsylvania. It's a college, you know, a college, college town. And they had a punk show on Saturday nights. You know, they didn't play punk music all the time or, or, uh, you know, alternative music all the time. But Saturday nights, it was all punk. So I sent my tape to them first, and they started playing it. And I was like, I can't believe this. I'm on the radio. This is great. And, uh, you know, once I found out that there were other stations, I found out about WRCT, Carnegie Mellon Radio. Uh, I was like, well, maybe I can get them to play it, too. I sent my tape into there. Manny Thiner was a cassette guy. He played all the cassettes. That's all he played. He didn't play any records. So... He, he he scooped it up right away. I was just listening today. I found the tape, the first tape, uh, the first time he ever played me on WRCT. I found the tape where he was oh, nice. inter- introducing me, yeah, to the world. You know, saying this is this is Paul, and blah, blah. so anyway, um, yeah, where I lost my <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I I sent it to him, and he started playing it. All the DJs at WRCT was like, "This is pretty cool. This kid's in the suburbs making this tape." I had no idea there were. People were home tapers all over the world. People were making their own tapes everywhere. And when I started doing it, like in 87, I was still in high school. I was very sheltered in the suburbs. I thought I was like the only one doing it. I had no idea. People were making albums all over the world on cassettes. So that was like, right, I, was right. like I was like, wow, this is everybody's doing this. So, um, but everybody was really into it. And man, he was like, oh, we we want to we want to get you out here to play live. And he set up my first show for me uh, in Pittsburgh. Oh wow. Open for Beat Happening. That was 1988. So, yeah, it was pretty much that. It was like Manny setting up shows. My The guy I was playing drums with, he eventually went away to art school, and I didn't have a drummer anymore. And I came to the one show, and I was like, I don't have a drummer tonight. And, and Manny said, oh, I'll just borrow the other band's drums. I'll come up and play drums with you. And that's oh, how nice. it happened. He just got up on stage <laughs> and started playing. didn't know any of the songs. <laughs> got up and started playing along. And then, we, you know, we, we, he ended up playing drums with me for a couple of years. So we did that. Well, well, how did that first show go with the Beat Happening show? It went good. I mean, people, uh, there were people who had heard me, you know, the DJs and everything, all the kids going to college there. They were excited to see me because I was kind of this mythical, legendary kid who lived out in the suburbs recording these mm. crazy songs. So they were all excited about seeing me. And uh, and Calvin Johnson from Beat Happening, a lead singer, he ran a label called K Records, still does, yeah. out in Olympia, Washington. And uh, he was really impressed by me, and, and he bought a bunch of my cassettes outright uh, to sell in his K Records catalog. So that was like oh, my first, awesome. yeah, that was the first way that I got my music out into the world was through, was through him. Got got around a little bit. And then uh, Manny and I did a 7-inch together. It's called Sucking Chest Wound. That came out in 1990. And that's when that got bought by a bunch of different distributors, Ajax Records, Dutch East India, and that's when it really started to get around. People started to hear it. I got a phone call one day from a buyer at Dutch East India. He said, we want 15 copies of every one of your cassettes. It was like 75 tapes. It took me like two weeks to make them. So I was making them all by hand. Oh, yeah. And I was like writing all the credits out by hand, everything. I didn't even use a copier. So it took me forever. So I made like 75 tapes, mailed them off. And then the guy who was signing the bands at Homestead, this guy named Ken Katkin, um, he, he wrote to me one day and he's like, I really want to sign you you know, to Homestead Records. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is what I always wanted. It's it's, it's happening. And uh, the thing was, 
that uh, Kent, I found out later, there was an article about Homestead Records in a magazine called Magnet. This was a few years ago. It might have been as many as seven, eight years ago now, though. Um, there was an article, and Ken said in the article that he knew that Homestead wasn't doing well in that, or something, and he didn't really like working there. He, he wasn't getting a fair shake or whatever, and he was going to plan on leaving, or they were going to fire him, one or the other. And he decided he was going to sign whoever he wanted to. So I am like indebted to this guy. He like, you know, he he started everything for me by just saying, I'm going to put the Weird Paul record out and I don't care what happens. You know, I don't right, care if it doesn't right. make any money or anything. So, you know, that's that's awesome when somebody feels that way, they they care that much. So Yeah, that's that's how, amazing. It, that's how it happened. Did you do that album sort of the same way like you just did it at home? Well, I recorded there was a few tracks I recorded at home because I had very exact uh, way I wanted them to be, exact instrumentation, everything else. But Manny and I had been playing together for a couple of years at that point, pretty much. And, uh, you know, we, we decided we were going to try to replicate how we did it live. So we recorded a bunch of the, the songs and stuff because the guy at Homestead even told me, he's like, you should re-record some of these songs, you know. And yeah. so we, we actually went into a house studio uh, here, a local guy had. We went in and we spent I think we spent three days recording it. We did drums and guitar one day. I came back and did the bass, and it was it was just on four tracks. It was drums. Um, s- s- drums were s- uh, split on one track or something. No, that's impossible. It was guitar on one track, drums on one track, bass on one track, vocals on one track. That was it. And and then we just mixed it down. So it was kind of had a real punk feeling to it because it's just like distorted guitar, drums, bass, vocals, and. Uh, you know, we just that's we just decided it should kind of try to sound like we did it live. So yeah, yeah, and uh, still a lot of people think that that's one of my best albums. Um, I have people, a lot of people say, "Oh, have you heard Weird Paul's first album?" And I always think that's funny because it wasn't my first album, but <laughs> right. it was. You know, it, it was the first thing that anybody could actually get because it was just you know distributed. It was actually in stores and everything like that. So yeah, funny thing that happened with it was that. Um, they they uh what do they what do you call it? They clearanced them all out in the mid nineties. It's probably like ninety four. All uh-huh, the remaining uh-huh. copies of the album. They clearanced them out and they sent them all out to National Record Mart and stores like that, Camelot Music maybe, all those like oh, mall wow. record stores. Yeah. And I was suddenly getting every week getting a couple fan letters from kids in the suburbs who went to the mall, found my album and were like it really appealed to them. They were high school kids and they were like, you know, I was just out of high school when I made that album basically, so and they're like, this is really cool, you know. This is this is like what we would like to do, you know. So they're all writing me, and I just thought that was amazing, you know, that they just sent them out for like the NRM for like a dollar each. You'd buy them, you know. People were fine. Right. It was it was another great thing that happened, you know, along the way. Just that's you know, awesome. Little great things, yeah. And did you guys start playing out of town when that record came out? Yeah, we had set up a tour. Was, that was one of the things that they wanted to be able to tell the record company is that we were, we'd be able to tour and support it. The problem was the album didn't come out until halfway through the tour. So we were playing shows oh. and we, we didn't even have an album to sell. We didn't have, uh, it hadn't already gotten to the radio stations and the college you know towns and stuff. They didn't even have it. So it was kind right. of, uh, that was kind of the problem. And nobody knew who we were when we were going places. There was a couple shows where people asked for their money back we had one show where the bar just uh we were supposed to play for two nights they just paid us and said don't come back tomorrow 
We had a lot of that kind of stuff. Shows where like yeah. the audience just like there was one show we played Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I remember somebody in the audience yelled out, "Wow, Pittsburgh must be really lame." So it was just really like people weren't even ready for us. I always have felt like I'm a little ahead of my time, you know. Yeah. People always say, "Wow, that's so cool. We watched these old videos you made in the '80s. You're ahead of your time." It is cool, but it's not cool at the time. You know, right. <laughs> at the time when you're ahead of your time, it's not so cool. People only appreciate it later. And that's the same thing. I feel like I, we were ahead of our time then. It's like people weren't ready yet for that kind of lo-fi kind of stuff. I mean, later, Daniel Johnson, everybody embraced him. But back then, that, that nobody was into that kind of stuff yet. So Right. And, and what were they expecting at the time? Like, like Nirvana, kind of like rock or something? Well, I mean, that was just – that was a very – Early days in Nirvana. I mean, well, Nirvana yeah. hadn't been on, on Nirvana. Never mind, hadn't come out yet or anything like okay. that. But there was a lot of math rock at the time, mm. like you know, proggy rock sound and uh, time signature change constantly kind of stuff. A lot of jangly indie rock. That's what I would yeah. call it, jangly, not distorted. Just like maybe a lot of um, not really even playing like real chords or anything. Just playing like a lot of loose notes and stuff like that. I think like the the most popular like indie rock bands at the time were like Sonic Youth, right, uh, right, and stuff like that. So we weren't really, you know, we weren't really. We were kind of goofy. We were jokey. We were a little like Dead Milkmen sounding, right, and really right. bare bones, just guitar and drums, and not real polished. You know, like really loose and not. You know, we weren't always playing together. You know, at the same time signature or whatever. You know, we were a little off, so a little out of tune. So, but that's how I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be uh, just just real lo-fi. Yeah. wasn't wasn't cool yet. That's all. Just had, wasn't time for it yet. So, was there like one main tour that happened that kind of discouraged further tours? We we went. Uh, we started out playing at the Knitting Factory in New York. Pretty crazy, okay. but it was the New Music Seminar, which was a thing they'd have every year to introduce like. Okay the new bands that were signed to record labels. So we played at this Homestead Records showcase. It was Sebado, us, and uh, like maybe four other bands that had just been signed to Homestead. So it was pretty pretty cool. I mean, it was like playing in front of more people than I'd ever played in front of, you know, like this huge packed room. But we just went south after that for a little bit, and then we went west. And we got out to Iowa City. We got down to North Carolina, and that was it. And I had made, I, I had found a list today. It's crazy that I just found this stuff today. But I'm always digging up new stuff that I don't, didn't remember I kept. I kept, I've kept so much stuff from my life. So I found a list of our tour. And there were all these other shows that we had planned to book. We had, we had the dates and the venues and everything. And for some reason, we canceled it. I don't know why. Mm. But, uh, but there were shows in New Haven and all these other places. So oh, okay. pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. That was it, though. Yeah, just that. That was all we did. There was a couple of reasons why that happened. Um, well, one was I had gotten engaged, and my fiance was going to play bass. I brought her into the band, and she and Manny didn't get along. Oh, uh, Manny had Manny had just like just outright insulted her playing. You know, he just said that she didn't have any sense of rhythm or anything, and she got really upset. So I had to tell Manny, I was like, you know, I can't, I'm not going to kick her out of the band. So, you know, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to split up. That's it. You know, I can't do anything about it. It's just not oh, working yeah. out. It's not working out. And 
you know, I can't look back and mean, you know, the, the marriage didn't last or whatever, but I can't really look back and say I did the wrong thing or whatever. I mean, I just always feel like things happen the way they're going to happen. And, you know, there's a choice made and, 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 and things just carry on. And, you know, you can't say what would have happened differently. Maybe nothing would have happened, you know. <laughs> so right, right. I'm not going to look back on it like that. But Manny and I have gotten back together and done reunion shows now and then, and it's, we always have a good time. And, yeah. And I don't I don't think that, you know, necessarily if Manny and I had continued that we would have been huge or anything like that. I don't know. I mean, you know, we didn't. I didn't get to do another album with Homestead because Ken got terminated or he quit. I, I can't remember which. And the new guy didn't want anything to do with me at all. He was probably oh, very. Wow. He, I called him one time and he seemed like he was very embarrassed that I was had been on the label at all. So, okay. yeah. So, so that was the end of that. And I just went through like a long period after that where, you know, I couldn't get shows much. In Pittsburgh, I didn't know anything about booking shows. Every once in a while, Manny would ask me to do a show, but I didn't really play. I, I didn't play out. I did some. I still did, done, did some recording, but I didn't release anything for a while. I was just mostly really depressed, and I just kind of sat around and watched horror movies every day mm. <laughs> for years. That was kind of a, the dark time of my life. So, Was there a feeling of, like, maybe that was it and that's okay, or was it, like, I I gotta like get no, things back. No, there, there wasn't really that feeling. I mean, I think in some way, like I just that was just kind of like that was just kind of the way it, it was. Like maybe I'm not I'm not doing anything, you know. And my wife didn't didn't uh, um, she didn't really like it. she didn't like that I was doing it. I don't think it didn't seem like she did, you know. And she was kind of she didn't like my the way I create my creativity or anything. After a while, it's just kind of like it's kind of against it. I thought. So I didn't really pursue it anymore, but uh -huh. even so, I had this inside of me, this creativity I've always had. It has to be, I have to use it somehow. It has to be manifested, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'd still write, I was still writing songs, I was still recording songs, I just wasn't doing it at the level that I had been doing it, and... I also, like, I got in, really into horror movies, and I started putting out uh, a fanzine. But it wasn't oh, about cool. music. It was about films, you know? I, I was yeah. writing movie reviews and stuff like that. So that was, um, like, a different outlet I had for my creativity. Did that for a little while. Then my right, son right. was born. My son was born in 1996. And I just had to, like, concentrate on being a family guy and, and being a dad and... and um and working, working hard. I got promoted at work. I, I did my job hard, you know. I, I had to make the money. I had to work a lot of overtime and yeah. take care of things. So it, it made a lot less time for stuff. And uh, around the late later 90s, I finally said, this is it. i got to play again. I'm, I'm just kind of losing my mind. I need this outlet. It's kind of like, for me, it's some kind of therapy, you know. Yeah, I, I got to get out and play. So I, I got a new band together with some guys, and uh, and we we played we played together for about a year and a half or so, and I did that for a while. What band was that? It was called the Blazing Bulkheads. Oh, and I had got I had gotten into this thing where I decided that uh, I wanted to be in a band that had a name. I didn't want to be just Weird Paul. I felt like yeah. if I had a band with a name, I felt like that was more of a something you could sell to people. I thought people didn't want to like hear Weird Paul. They wanted to hear 
a name of a band. Like that's what people would come to see. They would they would listen to. And I I was on that tangent for a little while. I had a couple bands with names instead of being Weird Paul. So when okay. I was in that band, John Roman was in that band. He he was oh, um, right. he's in Microwaves. Yeah. And uh, he he was in the Blazing Ballkeds. He was a bass player for a while. But uh, that lasted a little while, and then I broke it up. My 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 wife's mother died, and I said, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop playing because you know I think I think she needs me around." So basically, another year went by, and she left me, and I hmm. said, "Okay," I said, "I got to get through this." It was it was tough, not something I ever had to deal with before, and and looking back, it was the best thing. I mean, we never got along real well. It wasn't it wasn't a good time. And yeah. And I was like, I, I, I said, okay, this is it. I got to start making music again now. Now um, I don't have, you know, that to worry about. So I'm going to start making music again. But I stopped calling myself Weird Paul. I started calling myself Paul Petrosky. Okay. I don't know why, but I did a, two albums where I called myself Paul Petrosky. And I talked to this guy on the phone one night, Michael Pilmer. He uh, is Devo's tour manager or something now he goes out with them on the road and he he, uh he sets up stuff and he he takes pictures he comes out every show and takes a picture of the audience at the end of the show and stuff pretty cool anyway but i talked to him on the phone this was a long long time ago and i said you know i said i don't know i think i'm not going to call myself weird paul anymore i'm gonna call myself paul petrosky because i feel like no woman's going to go out with weird paul and he (laughs) said and he said you know paul it's it's the women that you, that's the wrong thing to think. It's women that are going to want to go out with Weird Paul. Those are the women that you need to go out with. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, but it took me a couple of years and then I was like, okay, you're right. I, I'm Weird Paul. What am I doing? I'm making a mistake. <laughs> I got back to being Weird <laughs> Paul again. But then it was my son. I had to raise him. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'd say I'm a single parent, but you know, he was, he was with my ex part of the time. But I was doing uh, I was doing a lot of time with him. I mean, she worked later hours than me, so I was see, I saw him every day, pretty much, almost every day of the week. I would I would be taking care of him at least part of the day. So I had to kind of still put stuff kind of aside. I had I had to bring my son up, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and that 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 took a while because you know he was still very young. Now he's twenty, so you know. It took it took a while, but now I I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know, I love this kid, and I got to raise him, and I'm gonna be like forty something years old when he's grown up. I have to wait until then before I'll be able to like go do what I want and try to like get back and follow my destiny. I was like, that's such a long time from now, and I'm gonna be so old. And now here I am, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's happening now. Here I am. So it's kind of funny in retrospect. The like resurgence as far as like the. There was like the Huffington Post thing and everything. Did that? Did you kind of focus on that once your son was grown? Yeah. Well, I mean, he was he was getting pretty old by that time. Yeah. That was 2012. So yeah, we're looking at yeah, he's like 16 then or something. So he was he still wasn't completely grown up, but by that time he'd moved out of town with his mom, moved about okay. an hour and an hour and a half away. So I wasn't seeing him as much. I'd see him like a couple weekends a month or something, but I did have more time because of that to kind of focus on trying to do what I did. And the other big thing was I lost my job. Mm. So I was like, well, I want to try to make something of this. I'm going to try hard to, you know, get out there and do shows and make music and try to make some money and do it. And it didn't really work out. But I was on unemployment for a while, and I said, I'm going to give this a try, try to make it happen. 
and uh, I had some time. So that's when I started. That's when that all happened. When I, I started uploading my old videos from the '80s to YouTube, and you know, it, it took a, it took a few months. I didn't know which one. I was like, one of these is going to go viral. I know it's going to happen. They're they're crazy. They're old. And it took a few months, and then one of them one of them hit. It was that McDonald's breakfast video that I made. Yeah. And it was on Huffington Post and all of that kind of stuff. It still wasn't really like the huge viral video like people get. People have viral videos, they get a million views. You know what I mean? Right, and right. This only got like 40,000 views, maybe less. So it wasn't really that big of a viral video. And, I mean, you say Huffington Post, people say, wow, that's huge. But it's just like people have like kind of a, a skewed understanding of this stuff, you know. And I've been doing it a while now, and I'm watching over it all, checking it all out, and starting to understand it more and more. But it's like it depends. It depends how it's presented, where it's presented, all that kind of stuff. Huffington Post put it in their food section, okay. Not too many right. people read the food section of the Huffington Post. <laughs> right. So it didn't really take off like it, like it could have if they had featured it somewhere else, you know. Yeah. So, but it was still a stepping stone. I mean, in the scheme of things, I look back, I got like 300 subscribers from, from yeah. that being in the Huffington Post. That's nothing. You know, at the time, I thought, this is huge. I'm going to be big. That was nothing at all. It was, it was absolutely nothing. Now I have 7,000 more than that. So, uh, but, but that's the thing, though. Everything I've done, I've always been like, this is the next thing. This is big. This is it. This is my big moment. It's like every, every time something happens, and it happens a lot. And I'm like, this is it. Something's happening. And then I realized, no, this isn't it, Paul. It's going to happen, but this isn't it. And that's why I wrote that song called Delusions of Grandeur recently on my oh, yeah. album, because it was just about how that always happens to me. And I feel like I, I'm getting my foot back on this ladder that's going to take me to the top, but... Uh, I'm not really going up at all. I just I, I feel like I'm going up it, but I'm not. I'm still at the bottom. So, you know, it's it's very slow. That's what I found out. I mean, it can be very fast. I mean, I know, you know, like the going for a rip thing. I mean, you you never know. Something right, huge right. can happen, and you you just go bam, there it is, and and now you know people care. But um, but it, it's it, it can take years. So. I just keep working on it, and I, I, you know, it keeps going faster and faster, and I just notice how much faster it's going. And it's still, I've learned to not get so excited, you know, because I had something on AV Club a couple weeks ago, and everybody's like, "Oh, this is huge, AV Club," you know, you, you must be, you must be hitting the big time, and like it was nothing. I got, a, I got a few hundred views on the video, and that was it. So, right, it's right, not, right. It's not what people think, you know. That's what it is. So. But I think it's cool that you've gone after it so hard, you know, like... Well, it's that I realized at some point. I finally realized. I think it was when the Huffington Post thing happened. I finally, like, realized that this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. You know, people say, you're supposed to be doing this, you're supposed to be doing that. What you're doing is not what anyone's supposed to be doing with their life. But I realized this, this is definitely what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. This is who I am since I was a young, you know... This yeah. is who I've been, and this is who I've – I was always trying to get to this point, and I only didn't realize it then. You, As you grow old, you acquire wisdom. Some wise man said that, and he didn't – he couldn't have said it when he was younger because he didn't have the wisdom to say it yet. Yeah. You know? So that's what it is. You know, you as you get older, you realize this is what what's happening, and I just – you know, I every once in a while I have this epiphany of something, and I'm like, that's why I do this. That's why I've been doing it that way. Because it's it's that reason that that's who I am and that's how I function. 
So it's great. I have I filled out this questionnaire. It was in a kid's magazine when I was a kid. I still have it. I was probably like nine years old or something, and it said, "What's like most? What's the most important thing to you? Uh, is it money? Is it is, what is it?" And I put being famous. So even yeah. then, at that age, I mean, I wanted to be a comedian. That's what I said in fifth grade. It's in the little book that they gave us in fifth grade. Everybody said what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I said a comedian. So I knew even at that young of an age what I wanted to do, and, and, and I just didn't know how, I, how it was going to happen. What's your road to that point? Some people figure this stuff out earlier, in an earlier age. Their, their road is a little less strewn with debris, and, and it's shorter you know, some of us right. have this. Some of us have this road full of rocks, and it's and it's all uphill, and it's, you know, all uh, twirly, and and some of the roads go back down instead of up. But, you know, the main thing is that you get there. So, I'm working on. Yeah, it. <laughs> absolutely. But I, you know, I was always trying to get somewhere here and try to try to, you know. Um, try to get my town to love me and, 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 and try to make it. And, you know, you know, more recently, especially with the internet and everything, the last few years of my getting out there on the internet and stuff, I realized that I don't need to even bother getting to any certain point here in Pittsburgh where I'm well known or anything. I need to concentrate more on getting everybody out there in the whole world to find out about me and not worry about this. This can come later, like even after the rest of the people in the world embrace what I'm doing. Then people in Pittsburgh say, oh, wait, uh, we missed this guy. He even lives here. You know, that's fine. But, yeah. but uh, that's that's the thing. I'm like, I'm not so worried about the local thing anymore. I mean, it's fine, but it's better to get out there and and play outside of your hometown. Right, it is to keep playing to the same people in your hometown. Playing for your friends is fun, and playing with your friends is fun. But you need to play to your fans at some point, you know. Yeah, and I think it's something about the dynamic of music now, with like the way the internet is and everything. Like, I feel like when I go on tour, if there's like a cool band that we're gonna play with, I just don't expect them to have any fans in their hometown. Right, you, you like, like, like I feel like it used to be like, oh, you're not even really a band unless you have this like local fan base. But like, now everything's so like all over the place that it's like, that's like not even a priority. Yes, yeah. or something. I agree. You know? It's like that because you know that's absolutely true. I mean, you can't expect to go anywhere and have a local band uh, be able to bring people to the show. I mean, yeah. I have bands. I have bands often ask me, "Can you get us a show in Pittsburgh?" And I tell them, look, I just want to make sure you know this before I get to the show. There may only be a couple people at the show. I don't have a draw here in my hometown. Right, right, right. And you have to understand that. And then they say, well, if you don't have a draw in your hometown, where do you have a draw? (laughs) (laughs) I can't answer that, so okay. (laughs) Well, thanks so so much, and I'm sure I'll see you soon in Pittsburgh. Absolutely. Right on, man. All right. Thanks again to Paul. See you next week.